Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn, if you would please, to Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42 as we continue in our study. It's a time for a vision test. Time for a vision test. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of the phrase, the proof is in the pudding? Has anyone ever heard that phrase, the proof is in the pudding? Uh, maybe if you're a little bit older, maybe it's in the Midwest. That's a phrase that's used to say that the real worth or the success or the effectiveness of something can only be determined by putting it to, to, by, uh, putting it to the test or trying to use it, uh, uh, not regarding the appearance and the promises aside. Yeah, you can look at a, a thing of pudding and you say, oh, that looks good. It looks cold. It's chilled. It, it's going to taste good. But the proof is in actually testing it. So as we look at the proof is in the pudding, we're looking at it's time for a vision test. We are continuing in our Jesus' second sermon in which he's been laying out the expectations, the requirements, and the attitudes of those that are the children of God. So it's, it's not enough to say that I am a child of God or profess that I am, a, uh, I am born again or I've been saved. The proof is in the pudding, so to speak. He's taking the measure of the man. Are you like our father? Are we merciful? Are we forgiving? Are we kind? In essence, he is saying that you can tell a Christian by observing their attitudes and behaviors towards others. The proof is in the pudding. Last week, Jesus called his disciples to surrender all their rights to revenge, to retaliation and reparation uh, from those that hate them, that persecute them, that curse them and abuse them. And this can only be done, we found, as we abandon self-love. We, can, we cannot do this unless we abandon our self-love, that, that pride that we have. And instead, imitate and adopt the character of our Father, who is kind and merciful, even to those who are in active rebellion against Him, as once we were. In our passage this week, as we come to 37 through 42 of chapter 6, Jesus continues to describe the attitudes and the actions required of a child of God in regards to how we perceive and respond to others. Now, in this part of his sermon, Jesus is going to call his disciples to acquire the skills, the spirit and wisdom of discernment, especially of themselves before jumping to conclusions about others. So with that, let's read those first two verses in Luke chapter 6. Verses 37 and 38, where Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love. And I pray that you just continue to bless us as we continue through Jesus' second sermon here. Father, there is much for us to see if the proof is in the pudding in our love and our caring for others. So I pray that you be with us. Uh, just help us to understand your word and respond to the Spirit's work we praise in Christ's name. Amen. What's interesting, thank you, is in Matthew 7, 1, 
we see this same phrase, judge not lest you be judged. And that has replaced John 3.16 as the most popular, well-known verse in America. I remember you used to see in the, in the ball games, you'd see a guy with a rainbow colored hair and he'd be holding up that sign, John 3.16. Everyone knew John 3.16. More likely the world knows Matthew 7.1. Judge not lest you be judged. Most have jumped on this verse as a defensive and offensive weapon against any and all calls to obedience to Scripture. Don't judge me. You're not to judge. Isn't that what your Bible says? Not only to our calls to obedience, but also the call to submit to Jesus as Lord. It has served the world's purposes well, as even many Christians now have adopted that same posture and attitude and mindset and interpretation of that verse. We can safely determine, though, that this verse has been misinterpreted and misapplied in any attempt to justify ungodly behavior and attitudes. In our passage today, we read Luke's account of the same teaching with some added context that was not given in Matthew's account. It is true that Jesus is teaching his disciples to not judge and condemn others and that by doing so, they will avoid the same treatment happening to them. However, it's important for us to understand exactly what Jesus is teaching and instructing here. Jesus is not teaching them to avoid making judgments or condemning sin, but is calling them to use discernment in making judgments and condemnations. In his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, Pastor Mark Dever writes that the idea of judging seems very negative to people today. Jesus did forbid judging in one sense in Matthew 7, 1. But in that same gospel, Jesus also very clearly calls us to rebuke others for sin, even to the extent of rebuking them publicly. So whatever Jesus meant by forbidding judging, he certainly did not mean to rule out everything conveyed by the English word judge. God himself is a judge. He was in the Garden of Eden. We remain under his just judgment as long as we remain in our sins. In the Old Testament, God judged both nations and individuals. In the New Testament, we as Christians are warned that our works will be judged. In love, God disciplines his children. And in wrath, he will condemn the ungodly, Mark Dever writes. He goes on to write, of course, on that final day, God will reveal himself as the ultimate judge. In all of his judging, God is never wrong. He is always righteous. Scripture tells us that we ourselves will one day judge angels. Could you imagine that? So it comes as a surprise to many today to learn that God intends others to judge as well. The state is given responsibility to judge. We are told to judge ourselves. We are told to judge one another in the church, though not in the same final final way that God does. Jesus' words in Matthew 18, Paul's in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, and many other passages of Scripture clearly shows that the church is to exercise judgment within itself and that this judgment is for redemptive, not revengeful purposes. There's the key. In the case of the adulterous man in Corinth and of the false teachers in Ephesus, Paul said that they should be excluded from the church and handed over to Satan so that they may be taught better and so that their souls might be saved. 
He ends by writing that book. It's not surprising that we should be instructed to judge. So what is Jesus saying when he says, judge not and you will not judge, condemn not and you will not be condemned? <coughs> Excuse me, the ESV study Bible notes, it's here on the monitor, that Jesus is not ruling out legitimate use of discernment, church discipline and law courts, but rather he is admonishing his listeners to dis discontinue their tendency to criticize and find fault with others. You see, the problem that Jesus is addressing is exhibiting a judgmental or con uh, a condemning attitude that leads to a moral judgment or a moral perception of a sense of a person that's not rooted in biblical discernment. Let me say it again. What Jesus is addressing here is exhibiting a judgmental or con, uh, condemning attitude that leads to a moral perception or a sense of a person that is not rooted in a biblical discernment and wisdom. This comes from a critical and skeptical spirit where we are guilty of prejudging people. The Apostle John warns us in John chapter 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now you and I understand that we have done that. We ourselves have probably been judged and prejudged by others. David Paulson, a biblical counselor, writes this. It's here on the monitor. He says, we judge others. We criticize, nitpick, nag, attack, and condemn because we literally play God. That's what we do when he warns us, do not judge, do not condemn with a condemning and judgmental spirit because you are literally playing God. This is heinous. We act exactly like the adversary who seeks to absurd God's throne, speaking of Satan as the adversary, and who acts as the accuser of the brethren. When you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. Your wrongs and my rights preoccupy me. We play the self-righteous judge in the many kingdom we establish. And I, I, that's whether that's in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, whatever it might be. You are stupid, cruel, insensitive, and selfish are words that we may say. You've gotten in my way. You are hindrance of my agenda. That's the spirit that Jesus is condemning here for those that are professing to be Christians. And these are very strong words. And it's a warning that we should take seriously. And consider whether or not this morning we are guilty of harboring such thoughts and behaving uh, towards others that Father, that the Father has called us to love. I believe one of the emotions that trigger this judgmental, critical, condemning spirit in our thoughts and behaviors is that of anger. We become angry. One of the pastors remarked that anger is a debt that says, you owe me. You remember this? You owe me. You've done something against me and you owe me. You, you burnt my meal or you didn't treat me right. You didn't speak to me right. Or you failed my expectations. You owe me. That's what anger is. We get anger when someone owes us a debt and we expect our pound of flesh. We want them to pay us back. This anger is displayed through judgmental and condemning thoughts and behaviors. When our wife does not meet our expectations for intimacy, when our husband does not meet our expectations for romance, 
when our children disappoint us, when people do not meet our values and expectations. Let me just give you something here, just a, a side note, just a little bit of a, um, uh, extra credit. You can write this down. What is it that causes quarrels? We find this in James 4. Well, it's because we, we have our passions and they're not met. Here's the case. When, when people come from counseling, especially from marriage counseling, the things that I usually write down is say, tell me in this list, what are your values? What are your values? By the way, your values are those things that you worship, those things that are important to you. And then in the next column, write your desires. What is it do you desire? Now, desire can be a godly desire, it can be a good desire. I desire intimacy with my wife. My wife might desire uh, um, uh, respect. Uh, we might have desire for our children to listen, obey us the first time. Might be a desire to take the groceries or, or to take the garbage out on time, to do the dishes. All these things are our desires, right? But here's the problem. Here's where the quarrels come because then we put expectations. That's the next column, is expectations. How we expect our desires to be met. And then we put those upon others. And what happens when our expectations are not met and our desires are not met, then that's when the quarreling and the fighting comes. That's when the anger comes. That's when you and I become debt collectors. You have not met my expectations. And so as I go through in the counseling, I always have to go back. Well, let's go back to your values and desires. Because usually when they're coming, they're, they're, they're angry about expectations, unmet expectations. But that's not really the issue. The issue is your values and your desires. And so in the same way, you and I uh, uh, adopt a critical and a condemning judgmental spirit when we become angry. Anger is exposed in several different forms. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31, the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Ephesus to put all types of anger away. You look at this verse here, it's on the monitor. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be to be put away from you do, uh, along with all malice. Now, as we just take a moment, look at those verses. As we look at those five sinful attitudes, bitterness, that describes a long-standing resentment. This is a settled hostility that poisons the inner man, a spirit which refuses to be reconciled with someone. Many of us struggle with that. Or with wrath or rage. That describes a, a passion, a, a breathing hard. It's an agitated anger that rushes along relentlessly. It's kind of like that, that, that flame that just blows out real quickly. You know, it, it burns quickly and then blows out. That's how many of us are. There's that, that rage. Then there's anger. And John MacArthur writes that this is not referred to an explosive outburst of temper, but to an inner deep resentment that sees and smolders often unnoticed by others. This is that one that's just under the surface. Then there's clamor. Put away all clamor. That refers to a shout or a cry of strife. It's an outburst that reveals a, lo a loss of self-control. And then slander, that's literally evil speaking. To speak of others so as to harm or defame, this is gossip. This is obviously the one that God warns us very much about in the New Testament that destroys a church, it destroys families. We're guilty of this many times. And then malice, that's wishing evil upon others. 
That's a judgmental condemning spirit. And when Paul tells us to put these away from among us, he means that's a decisive, a definitive action needs to be carried out with a sense of urgency. Once these things become aware of you, that you're, you're harboring these types of, these angers, these sinful attitudes, he says you need to make a decisive, definitive action that puts these away from you now and forever. As we go to Ephesians 4.32, he goes, says, instead of these things, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven us. See, when we allow these sinful attitudes to become, uh, to find a resting place in our hearts and minds, we eventually find ourselves treating others sinfully. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, a little bit earlier in that chapter, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give opportunity to the devil. And see, what I think has happened to many of us, we have allowed the, uh, Satan to get a foothold in our lives and allow him to just, like a cauldron, in his, in his, and he's just stirring that bitterness, that resentment, that anger, that wrath, that all those things in our hearts. Pastor David Guzik, in his Enduring Commentary website online, warns us about committing these judgmental and condemning attitudes when he writes, and listen to this, when you and I are guilty of breaking this, listen here, you'll see it here in the monitor. You and I are guilty of breaking this commandment when we think the worst of others. When we only speak to others of their faults, when you're that person that points out all that they do wrong. When we judge an entire life only by its worst moments. Now this is the world that we are, right? Let's look through someone's Twitter feed and let's find that moment at their worst moment and let's judge them for the rest of their life by that one moment. Aren't you glad that God does not do that to you and I? You and I are guilty of this behavior and these attitudes when we judge the hidden motives of others as if we can discern their thoughts and their motives. When we judge others without considering ourselves in their same circumstances. Have you walked in my shoes? And we judge others without being mindful that we ourselves will be judged. You and I are guilty of transgressing God's word in these very moments. Now, before we go on and take a moment to look again at this list, look at it just for a moment. Have you found yourself guilty of breaking this command this week, this past month, this year? Have you become a debt collector? None of us like debt collectors, right? We don't like to get that phone call. But I'm afraid that many of us who profess Christ have become debt collectors. We're holding on to grudges. We're harboring resentment. If so, the command of Christ is simple. In our message last week, Jesus calls us to be sons of the Most High. For he's kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. So how are we to do? We're to be merciful even as our Father is merciful. Be kind and merciful means not only that we surrender our rights to revenge, retaliation, and reparation, but also to forsake judgmental and con uh, condemning attitudes that harm others and even our testimony for Christ. Jesus goes on to state that if we forsake those attitudes, we will also be spared a judgment and condemnation. 
But also he states that we'll be forgiven. And if we forgive and receive, and receive generously, and when we give, or we will be forgiven if we forgive, and that you and I will receive generously when we give generously. So we see in this passage that there are two negative and two positive behaviors. Two to be abandoned and two to embrace. We have shared in the past that the only way to pay the debt of anger is to forgive. We must come to understand that those who have done us wrong or those that we have perceived to do us wrong have never been able to pay that back. You and I know that. There's nothing that they do to pay us back. And the only way to get rid of that debt is to freely forgive them as Christ has forgiven us. That means a true releasing of the debt. I think the problem is, is you and I don't know what forgiveness means when we talk about it biblically. The word forgiveness means to release, to loose, to dismiss in whole. It's the tension between, you know, can we forgive and we can forget? Well, I'll forgive you, but what? I'll never what? Forget. But see, that's the problem. That's not true biblical forgiveness. What needs to be done is we need to remember not to, is we, uh, when we remember that, we're not to put it back to their account. Forgiveness is not only a good thing to do, but it's a command and it's an expectation for the Son of God. In Matthew's gospel, he's much stricter when he says in Matthew 6, 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, he says your heavenly Father will forgive you. That's wonderful news. However, he says, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, guess what? Neither the Father will forgive you. There seems to be a condition on our forgiveness. In this passage, Jesus is tying God's forgiveness of our sin to our obedience in forgiving others. This is a sobering passage as we consider how often that you and I have harbored resentment and bitterness towards others. Maybe one of the reasons that you are not seeing God's work in your life right now is due to an unforgiving heart. Maybe the reasons your prayers haven't reached past the ceiling in your mind is because you're harboring anger, resentment. There's a judgmental and condemning spirit in your own mind and heart. Let me just say a few words about forgiveness so that we understand what is commanded and expected of us. First, forgiveness is not an emotion. Okay? Uh, it, th th there's a sense in which, yes, we want to do that. There's a desire for us to love them, but it's really an act of a will again. Ken Sande in his book, The Peacemaker, writes this. You'll see it on the monitor. It's such a good quote. I wanted you to be able to see it and read with me. He says, forgiveness involves a series of, de of de decisions. Excuse me. <coughs> the first of is to call on God to change our hearts. Forgiveness is an active process. It involves a conscious choice and a deliberate course of action. However, what we do is we just wait until the pain goes away. Or maybe I'll just forget what the pain is or forget that debt. No, but it's a decision. It's a choice. When God says that he remembers our sins no more, he is not saying that he cannot remember our sins. Rather, he is promising that's not a her, that's a mistake. He is promising that he will not remember them. When he forgives us, he chooses not to mention, to recount, or think about our sins again. So what does that mean for you and I? 
Just as God does not stew over our sins, nor should we of the sins of others against us. And we can go back to what we saw last week. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who, who uh, and so on and so forth. As what we have to look at that is we're not to stew over that, but we're to make a choice. I will not think of them. I will not put it back to their account. Forgiveness is a release paid in full. It's not bringing it back up. However, many times when we fight, what do we do? We bring up old things and bring it back into the moment. That's not forgiveness. That's not releasing. Secondly, forgiveness is not easy. I'll admit that. But we're still called to do so. Ken Sandy goes on to share four, uh, to share four principles or promises of forgiveness. When you and I uh, promise to forgive someone, it says, I will not dwell on this incident. Yes, you owe me, but I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring up this incident again or use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. And I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Now that's a biblical forgiveness. For that's what God does to us when he forgives us. There's no longer any condemnation. He removes our sins as far as from the east and from the west. He goes on to state that making and striving to keep these promises will break down the walls of hostility that you and I have painstakingly erected around us those barriers. It is these walls of hostility that robs us of the blessings of God. It hinders our prayers. It prevents us from loving our neighbors and it harms our witness for Christ. Again, we can only accomplish this if we remember the richness of God's love and mercy to us. Paul reminds us in Romans 5.8 that God shows his love for us, not while we were yet, or for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. He forgave us even when we were in active rebellion against him. God is calling for us to abandon judgmental and condemning spirits and instead to embrace forgiveness. But how are you and I are to, to embrace forgiveness? Well, that's the next one. He says to give generously. This love that included forgiveness was lavished freely upon us, but it came at a high cost of the torture and death of his son, Jesus Christ. Not only that, but it, it, it is re, a repeated forgiveness as we continue to rebel against him and his word. Past, present, and future sins are all forgiven us as we rejoice with the promises that there are no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So how do we continue? The next command is to give and it will be given to you. Now we can spend all day going over all of the good gifts that are freely given to us by a merciful, loving Father. In Matthew 7, 11, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, if you then who are evil know how to good give, good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We have a loving father who gives to us generally, does he not? Count your many blessings, the, the hymn goes. See what God has done. 
But the word in, in Scripture, the word give in Scripture means to deliver and to commit. God has called us to follow his example, example in being generous givers of committing and delivering. Now this could mean giving in general to the church, missions, and other charities. It could mean time, money, so on and so forth. But most likely in this context, when he's saying to give generously, he is referencing offering forgiveness to those that are our enemies, to those that abuse us, to those who do us harm. So how are you and I are to forgive? I believe we are to give, forgive generously. Instead of responding with judgmental and condemning attitudes, we are to call to be generous and to give people the benefit of the doubt or to reject the right to strike back at them, to release them from that debt. Not to expect them or call them to beg for our forgiveness, but to give it freely, generously. Christ expects us to show mercy not to exhibit judgmental attitudes, condemning attitudes, or an unforgiving attitude, or a stingy attitude. But he calls us to the positive character traits of our Father. Now, no one likes to be stereotyped or prejudged by others, or even to be excluded. Yet many times we are guilty of doing this. Instead, we are called to be generous in how we measure and treat others. We're to view them as Christ does. Jesus goes on to share that we are to do this understanding that how we give is how God will treat us. Look at with me in verse 38 of chapter 6. We read this. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So how judgmental, how condemning are you? How forgiving are you? That's how God will measure out to you. The New American Commentary notes that the amount measured is not short or skimpy or even fair, but it's a good measurement. It's above satisfactorily and it's and, and, and above our expectation. Jesus promises that if we give generously, the Father will respond in kind. Look at the phrases he uses to describe good measure. He says it's first, it's pressed down. It's fill the space of the, counter, of the container. It's, it's shaken together. It's to fill every empty space. It's running over. It's filled to the top and overflows. Now, you and I can somewhat understand this. Have you ever gotten a, a bag of potato chips and then to open it up and find out that it's 90% air and there's just a few? There, there's nothing more aggravating than that. But let me give you something more. There's nothing else that's worse than that. That's going to McDonald's and ordering an extra large fry. And then you get it and you see it. And it looks good while you look in the bag. But when you get home and you take it out and you see that it's much less than what the container is. And what do you do? You, you kind of shake it and it all falls down. You say, look at all this. I'll never forget once going, I'm going to name them out. Del Taco. If you didn't hear me, I went to Del Taco. And I went to get their macho size, their mega size. I was feeling like a man that day. I deserved it. I wanted their matcha. That's all I was ordering. Just give me their fries. I love those crinkle fries. So I go and I order them. I say, I want one of those macho mega size. All right. And I think this thing is quite a bit. It's expensive, more than a couple bucks. So I go and I do what I always do. If you've been with me, you've probably been embarrassed by this. Jacob left the state so he didn't have to deal with me anymore in this case. I pull out the thing and I'm looking and I said, and I'm, I don't have no problem doing this. I said, could you fill this up? I paid for the mega size. It, it wasn't even filled to the top. 
Well, she goes, gets the manager. He doesn't like his fries. Well, it's not enough. Fill it up to the top. I wanted the mega size. The container is this big. I expect at least to look at it and see fries standing out of it. Well, she goes, well, no, well, this is how we do it. She puts it on a scale. Now, I'm going to drive through. There's people behind me. She puts it on a scale and says, it's supposed to be two point whatever ounces it is. And see, yeah, it's about two ounces. And I swear she gave it back to me. She took a few fries out. In disgust, I just drive away. McDonald's does the same thing. I get their fries. I get back. And, and I pay extra for fries. I'm only going there. I, I buy the hamburger, the chicken nuggets, just so as an excuse to get the fries. I'm a fry guy. Well, they don't do it right. I'm going to use another name. Five Guys. Go to Five Guys if you want fries. Because they not only just fill out the, the little container, but then the person just kind of, despite the fries, takes and throws more in your bag. And I'm thinking, that is great. And plus, they give you peanuts. I mean, that is a great thing. We were there just last Sunday. And they had this, you know, I just ordered a small fry. Why? Because they're going to give me a large fry anyway. There's, sometimes it's like, man, I can't eat the rest of these. And this is the kind of thing that God says, hey, I'm not going to give you McDonald or Del Taco fries. I'm going to give you the five guy fries. It's going to be pressed down. It's going to be shaken together. It's going to be running over. You know, I think of, we have a missionary friend named um, uh, Novak, Jerry Novak, and they're in Kenya. And he gave us this. This has always been, he preached on this ser uh, sermon one time, this passage. And he says, there, when you go to get rice or something like that, they still give it to you in the old bags. So you don't go to a store and buy like Uncle Ben's rice that, you know, that's a little bag or something like that or a little box. He says, you still get it and they scoop it out and they put it in you. And he says, you get an old burlap sack. You know what a burlap sack is, right? Okay, we, we haven't been so postmodern that we don't understand that. And he says, what they would do is they would put it in there, but then they would do is they would put it halfway and they would pick up the bag and they would shake the bag, okay, to fill up those empty spaces. Then they'd put more in and guess what they would do? Shake the bag some more. And then what they do is that then they would pour some more in there, shake it. And then when it gets down, they would press it down and then they would then cover the, 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 the top. I mean, this is something that McDonald's and Del Taco need to learn. This is how thing is supposed to be. This is how God gives, and he says, I'm going to press it down. I'm going to fill out those spots. There's not going to be empty air. I'm going to fill every space. I'm going to fill the whole space of the container. None of it's going to be wasted. It's going to be rolling over, or running over, filled to the top and overflows. Jesus remarks that the Father's generation, uh, generosity will, will pour into your lap or be put into your lap. That phrase, poured in your lap or put into your lap, is a word picture. That describes how the Jews would wear long robes down to the feet. You can imagine that from the movies you've seen. And around the waist, there would be a girdle. Well, the robe could be pulled up from there, in which when they would give same, it would work as a pocket. So I can't really do this real well in a suit, but it would go like this. And they say, fill me up. And it would just be overflowing in the robe so they could have extra. That's what I want. I want my fries to be such, it's not only a container, but there's a few of them lying in the back of the bag when I'm done. And I'm surprised. And I think, oh, look at this. I found a few fries at the bottom of the bag. That's what I'm looking for. That's what God has promised us when we forgive. The New American Commentary points out that the believer's attitude towards others will determine God's behavior towards him. As the sons of the Most High, we are to mirror the character of our Father who is merciful to his children. In return, he has called us to follow suit in our relations to others. Now, Jesus closes up this part of his sermon 
by telling them a parable in verse 39. Would you read silently along with me as we look at it? He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Now the first two questions are rhetorical questions, not needing an answer because it's pretty obvious. No, a blind man cannot lead a blind man. And of course, yes, they both are in danger of falling into a pit that they cannot see or discern. He follows that up with an axiom, a truth, that a student can only reach the level of his teacher. These are common sense observation that he uses to point out the fact that a judgmental and condemning spirits are hypocritical. Look with me at verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the, lo the log that is in your own eye. You see the, a speck compared to a big log. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye. When you, you, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take out the log of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye in essence jesus is saying you who are to, who are you to judge and condemn others when you're just as guilty as they are this is a devastating accusation and serves to warn us that we will be judged and condemned as well by our own critical spirits we ourselves are guilty of being hypocrites hypocrite was a greek word that was used for an actor who played a part and what he's saying is you are playing the part of a Christian as the son of God and your actions, your thoughts, your behavior shows that you're not. You're a hypocrite. And generally speaking, no one likes hypocrites. Though in the end, we are all hypocrites at one time or another. Just think of how you're feeling today of the hypocrisy and folly of our government leaders who are dictating health guidelines, then immediately breaking themselves. It, it raises up a judgmental and condemning spirit against them, does it not? I've been guilty of this. It's been amazing as I'm preparing this message and realizing how often I have that spirit. And my anger rises as they're shutting down one thing after another. And you're just wondering, what is going on? What happens is when they do that, they lose credibility, do they not? That's the lot of hypocrisy, of hypocrisy, of a hypocrite. And he's saying, if you exhibit that type of behavior, you are a hypocrite. You are playing a part that is not yours, that is not you. The father wants his children to protect themselves from adopting the attitudes and behaviors that would mark them as hypocrites and lose our credibility as a witness of the gospel. And as sons of the Most High, we are to mirror the character of our Father who is merciful to His children. In return, He has called us to follow suit in our relationships to others. God judges, He condemns, He forgives, and gives without partiality and with wisdom and righteousness. So you and I are to judge there is a time in which we will condemn, but we must do it with biblical discernment in doing a vision test ourselves. Are we forgiving? Are we generously forgiving? For only then are we able 
to be righteousness to the world. So in summary, the Father has called us to forsake all judgmental and condemning attitudes and behaviors by generously forgiving others. We are to view people as God views them. And here's the problem, is we do not view people as God views them, as sinners in need of a Savior. It just surprises me how much I fall into this, as well as the rest, when we are surprised when sinners act and think like sinners. People will harm us. They will hurt us. They will work against us. And Christians, we are quick debt collectors looking for our pound of flesh. When God has called us to release those debts because he has released the greatest debt towards us. To do this, we need to pray for the skill of discernment. Tim Chalice in his book, The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment, I would recommend it. You'll see the title there. He writes this, discernment is the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. It understands when to pass judgment and when to pass condemnation. It understands when to forgive and when to love. It understands how to apply God's word. And you and I, this is a, this is a skill that all of us need to give. And to acquire. For many of us have done much harm to the cause of Christ and to our profession of faith by how we treated others with our condemning and judgmental spirits, our critique, our skepticism. Part of discernment is understanding that God does not forbid moral judgments, but hypocritical judgments. Pastor Dustin Binge uh, tweeted this this past week. I would recommend if you're on Twitter, uh, find him, follow him. This man is just, he is just wonderful. I just love everything that he writes. He tweets this, Jesus warned of the Sadducees. Jesus rebuked the scribes. Jesus called out the Pharisees. Jesus reproved the priest. But Jesus still wept over Jerusalem. If you and I are to be like Jesus, all critique must flow out of what? Compassion. Our love for others. We will see and be affected by the sins of others against us or just because of their actions. However, you and I must fear for them and our love must overcome those critical skeptical attitudes. And help them see that sin is destroying their lives. It's hurting them. That one day they'll stand before a God of justice and righteousness filled with wrath. Let our thoughts and actions mirror the generous love and mercy and kindness of our Father towards others. One last on the monitor, one toy, uh, uh, quote comes from Kevin Carson. He encourages those who are struggling. For if you're like me, we're human. We struggle with these thoughts. We struggle with these judgments. We struggle with these condemnations. We struggle forgiving. We have a hard time releasing others from their debt. But for those that are struggling, he writes, true change is possible. First mark that. 
you can release the bitterness and the anger that you're holding. Your heart can be changed towards that person. It is possible because true change has already happened at the heart level, in your heart. If you're a child of God, he has taken out that heart of flesh and that, or I'm sorry, that heart of stone and replaced it with the heart of flesh, one that could see as Jesus sees, the one who could feel as Jesus feels. You've transitioned from a heart past feeling to a heart that now desires to become like your Savior and Lord Jesus. That change is possible. And I would challenge you to follow the commands of Christ, to judge not, lest you be judged. Condemn not, lest you be condemned. Forgive that you may be forgiven and to give generously. Would you commit to that today? Do not let your life be full of hypocrisy. For that is a bitterness that will eat away at your soul and your mind and heart. And in the end may mark you for judgment yourself and condemnation. As it finds that your profession of faith was in vain. And it was not true. I pray today that you would forgive as he forgave. That you would require that skill of discernment. So that you can lead others towards Christ. For that's what we want to do. And above all, you and I must recognize that Jesus has called us to himself. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We said already, if you have not accepted Christ today, would you do so? For one day you will stand before God. It is appointed unto man once to die, then after this, the judgment. He says he will judge the living and the dead according to their works. I pray that you will stand with no condemnation as one who is the son of God who has been made right, declared right by God, by the works of Christ. If you have not done that, would you do so today? Today is the day of salvation, Isaiah says. Do not go another moment not understanding or not knowing where you'll spend eternity. Would you come to the one who forgives you generously now in your state? I pray that he would call you this morning and that you respond to the Spirit's work. There we had bowed and every eye closed and we asked Landon to go ahead and come on up. The pastor's prayer. Do you have it? Rainy has it? Sorry. <laughs> that startled you. I'm just going to challenge you. <clears throat> come to Christ. If you're struggling with that sin, if you're struggling with bitterness, come to Christ. He'll forgive you. He'll give you the strength to forgive others. If you're struggling with that, commit today. I am going to work with my heart. I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to love them that. The enemy that we're speaking of may be your spouse. It may be a relative. It may be a, a child. It may be a, a co-worker. It may be your boss. It may be the next door neighbor. But whatever, whomever it may be, bring it to Christ. Randy, would you come and close this with prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.